You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Our reading this evening comes from Exodus 5 and 6. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. Verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the way that you have acted in history and in our lives. We pray now that you would act even amongst us, your people, tonight as you come to us in your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you are a fourth through sixth grader and would like to go with Gail and Patrick Gozier to talk about the text that we just heard read, you can do that now. It's torch night tonight. It's a, every time we sing that song and I hear you all 
singing, Lord, we lift up to your care, him who stands now to declare it. It's a bit of gravity on my shoulders uh, hearing you all pray that in song, Uh, but it's good to bring God's word to you tonight, Uh, especially in this great text, which is difficult though. Uh, I was thinking this week about this 1960s Stanford psychology researcher who did an experiment that many of you might know of. He performed this now famous test on four and five-year-old kids. He would put a four or a five-year-old alone by themselves at a table by themselves and he would put a large marshmallow in front of the child and said, "Uh, I'm gonna leave the room now. Uh, I'm gonna be gone for 15 minutes. You can just sit in here by yourself. Uh, If you'd like to eat the marshmallow, you can, Uh, but If you can wait for 15 minutes, when I come back, then you can have a second marshmallow. So eat the marshmallow now or wait for 15 minutes and get two marshmallows. Uh, This is a famous test now, so you can just Google marshmallow test and see many modern recreations of this and they are hilarious. Like watching the mental anguish that some of these children are going through. And really, really funny stuff. Like but the marshmallow is staring them at, in the face and it seems to be better than the promise of a marshmallow that they can't see. And while it's easy for us to watch on YouTube some of these four and five-year-olds and just like yelling through the computer screen, like, come on, kid, come on, like just a couple more minutes, you can do it, as the, you can see them caving. Uh, or for us to just, you know, just get really upset when they finally do eat it. Like, why would you do that? We are all so many, or so many of us throughout our days and weeks just like some of these kids. As 21st century Westerners, we are perhaps the greatest instant gratification culture in all of human history. Like text messaging where we expect a response immediately and if we don't see like the immediate like reply dots going, like why aren't they answering me? Or with fast food, with microwaves, social media posts that we post and then we want people to start liking and commenting on immediately. Or we think that our post wasn't good enough. More Netflix shows and blog posts than we could have uh, a lifetime to digest through. So we can start 30 or 45 seconds of a new series on Netflix and just quit on it because there's plenty more because this isn't doing it for me. But humans throughout history, while we are perhaps more guilty than other cultures uh, throughout history, humans throughout history have always wanted the things that they want, the way they want them, when they want them, as quickly as possible. Because really, who would want to go through an unpleasant situation? Well, the, things, the way that things have been progressing in Exodus, we would expect that things are really looking up. Israel has been suffering for four centuries of slavery, But God has now sent Moses to deliver Israel out of slavery. And after some stubborn back and forths that we saw from Moses, he is finally heading back to Egypt. And we read at the end of chapter four that hearing the news of God's coming deliverance, the people believed in what God was going to do and they bowed their heads, they worshiped. Things are looking really, really good. But then, as you heard Kristen read, things do not immediately get better. In fact, it's not just delayed gratification. Israel has to wait for a little bit of time before they get their two marshmallows or something. It's actually that they, things get markedly worse. It's not just that they have to sit and wait. Things, while they are waiting, are getting terrible. What's going on here? We're going to see tonight that ultimate deliverance does not always mean immediate 
ease and comfort. And we'll see that played out under three headings or movements of this story this evening. That first, the Pharaoh of slavery, and then the people of slavery, and then, contrasting it all, the God of freedom. So first of all, the Pharaoh of slavery. In verse one, Moses and Aaron, they roll into Pharaoh's court. Maybe it's because Moses was the adopted son of the previous Pharaoh's daughter. It's a bit unexpected that like a renegade Hebrew murderer just gets to come in and, and gain audience with the most powerful king in the world. But they roll in and what do we find? Having seen Moses, him and Haw for the past couple of chapters, what happens here is again unexpected. He comes in with confidence and then, presumably, Aaron, speaking for Moses, says, thus says the Lord, listen to what Yahweh, listen, what to, listen to what the Lord, the God of Israel has, say, has to say, let my people go so they can hold a feast for me. Now, this is a bit weird for us, right? We know that he's not just asking for them to be able to go on a three-day journey for a feast, like that they're going to come back or something. But knowing what we know from the end of story perspective, we know that God intends to deliver Israel, not just for a couple of days, but forever. Perhaps here though, God is giving Pharaoh a test. It was not uncommon for Egyptian pharaohs or other kings to give conquered people or slaves an opportunity, a short time to go and worship their gods. So what Moses is initially asking here is not an outlandish request that Pharaoh would, would give them time to go worship their God. But even to a modest initial request, Pharaoh is indignant. He is even dismissive. He says in verse two, who is the Lord, who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? Could be another summary statement of this entire book of Exodus. Who is God? Who is the Lord? And what Pharaoh says is, basically, yeah, your God, who, who you want to go worship, I don't know that guy. I don't know him. I, I don't recognize him. I don't accept him as a God. And moreover, I do not, I am not okay with my slaves going to worship this God. And so the, first, the second half of verse six, he actually says, so let them go. Not let them go in freedom, not let them go in, in worship of Yahweh, but he says in verse six, let them go and now gather straw for themselves. They are still to make the same amount of bricks and still to make these bricks with straw. The straw acted as like a fortifying binding agent to make these mud bricks now more, uh, more strong. But Pharaoh is not saying that they are not allowed to use straw in their bricks, but just that they have to collect their own straw. Perhaps before, the Egyptians themselves were providing the straw for them. So they are not, not only slaves, not being paid for their work, but now they are required to bring and provide their own materials. These slaves who work all day under 100 degree Egyptian sun without sunscreen, without hats, without regular rest, union mandated lunch breaks or water breaks, without camelbacks or like a big old orange igloo cooler over there to go and keep themselves hydrated. Undoubtedly, across the centuries, countless Israelite slaves died under heat exhaustion, under dehydration. And now, now that Moses shows up and says, thus says the Lord, things are getting worse. It was bad enough that they're dying under the heat of the sun. But now, as soon as they get off work in the evening, they have to go out into the fields. They have to perhaps go down to the Nile 
riverbank and gather straw until they can't stay awake any longer. And then they show up to work the next morning with the the straw that they gathered all the night before and just do it all over again, over and over again. No rest, no mercy, no end in sight. Yahweh, through Moses, shows up in Egypt to bring deliverance. Apparently, one would expect to make life better. But instead, things are getting worse. Well, experientially, anecdotally, both in our own experience and the lives of others, we might expect, yeah, this is kind of the way things go. Like, what do I mean? Not, not the fact that, like, if you trust God's promises for your life, things are going to get terrible. You're going to have a miserable life if you become a Christian or something. That's not what I'm suggesting, but just that, like, as Clint and I and others give baptism testimony advice for those who are getting baptized and we are helping them think through the way in which uh, they can write a testimony, we, we often give them the counsel to not sell a false bill of goods. Not to say, life was miserable, I became a Christian, and now life is awesome. I've never had any problems. It's just joy and skipping through the daisies every day or something like that. That's not true. Sometimes you will hear a story, something like I was addicted to heroin or I was an alcoholic and since coming to Christ, uh, I haven't had an appetite for another drop of alcohol since. Sometimes you'll hear a story like that, but those stories are actually few and far between. The reality for most folks as they begin to follow Christ in faith, as they begin to stake their lives on the reality of God's promises to save and stake their lives on the now new desire to obey Christ in their life is that life actually does get harder before it gets easier. I mean, we would expect that to be true merely from like biological or psychological perspectives. If you've ever tried to quit smoking, or even tried to like quit or wean off sugar or sodas in your life or something, the first few weeks can be very, very difficult. Or if you've been really inactive for a while and you decide, I'm going to start working out, I'm going to start going to the gym, the first couple of weeks can be terrible. Psychologists say that it takes about 66 days, about two months to form and make new habits. And breaking old habits or starting new ones, it's always harder before it gets easier But the life of a Christian, the life of dying to the old self, the life of growing in nearness to the Lord, the life of giving each moment of the day and living each moment of the day in the shadow of the glorious cross and the light of Christ who loves me and gave himself for me, this this isn't just a new psychological motivation for life. It isn't just training your mind or your body to respond chemically different It's not just forming better or new habits. This is a spiritual battle of life and death. Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that in a similar way that God would do in Pharaoh in just a couple of chapters, Christ has disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he has put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, a couple of observations about what Paul is describing of what Jesus has done at the cross. The worldview of Jesus, of Paul, of Peter, and of other New Testament writers is that the evil one, the actual spiritual powers, rulers, authorities that we cannot see, that are not visible to us, actually exist. That there is a spiritual realm and a spiritual battle that is 
not visible to us. The power of opposition to the kingdom of God will stop at nothing to keep God's image bearers, to keep humans enslaved in the kingdom of darkness. And so we would be naive to think that the tempter, as he is often called, the the enemy, the power, the rulers, the authorities, wouldn't want to make life as difficult as possible for us so that we would be tempted to believe that God is either not there or that God is not good, that he is not worth following. Just consider the way he tempted Jesus in in our difficulty in the same way temporary satisfaction in stuff can be better than lasting satisfaction in the provision of God. In our weakness, the tempter can come offering supposed power and victory apart from the Lord. In our doubt, the tempter can offer answers contrary to the character or the word of God. So spiritual powers are real and we can expect ongoing temptation in our lives that would tempt us to just throw in the towel in our faith in Christ and his promises. But a second observation from Colossians 2 that these powers are real, but that Christ has disarmed them, triumphing over them in his death and his resurrection. Like, amen? Whatever spiritual power exists to tempt you and to make your life in Christ as difficult as possible has no power over those who are in Christ. We Christians who have the very power of the same spirit who hovered over the waters at creation and the same spirit who brought Jesus back from the grave, he is the one who has brought you from the grave. The evil one is mortally wounded and Christ has won. But a wounded animal is often more dangerous than a healthy one. And the enemy will not go down without a fight, taking as many as he can with him. And so consider the ways in which you've experienced this in your own life. You believe God. You want to follow him. It may even seem that the more resolved in your faith that you grow in, though, the more powerfully persuasive a tempting taskmaster may be. At first, when we become Christians, initially we see rapid and real growth. And that can be true for Many folks, this Christianity thing is awesome, but things then get more difficult. Thinking, I actually do want to honor the Lord with my thoughts and my actions, but the siren call of pornography gets louder and more difficult for me to ignore. I actually do want to trust God, trust him more nearly and be less anxious But the tempting voice of he is not there, he is not good, gets louder and it becomes more difficult to ignore. I actually do want to grow in self-control, grow in peace, grow in not becoming angry and not responding to the world as if I am in control of it and that people exist for me. But then the people closest to me just push and pull in such ways that it feels impossible to not respond in anger and on and on and on we hear the voice of the tempter just saying keep on making those bricks your life is no different no better with this supposed God this Yahweh this Jesus than before and in fact not only is it any different but it's actually worse 
following this Christ. It's more difficult and worse. Let me go ahead and show you how insignificant, how non-existent, even how evil this God is. I'm going to make your life worse because of your obedience and your faith in him. Find your own straw and keep on making those bricks. If you've never read C.S. Lewis's Imagine Strategies of the Enemy to Keep Humans Enslaved, you should just take some time this summer and absolutely go read the Screwtape Letters. Great, great insights into how the enemy might keep on tempting us in the reality of Christ who is with us. And so in verse 10, the taskmasters and the foremen of the people, they, they went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. At the first half of chapter five, it starts with thus says Yahweh, and the second half of chapter five then shifts to thus says Pharaoh. This is not a battle of Moses versus Pharaoh. It's not even a battle of Israel versus Pharaoh or Israel versus Egypt. Pharaoh has just drawn the line. The gauntlet has been laid. I do not hear your God. I do not recognize your God. Thus says me. Pharaoh sees himself as a God of Egypt and Israel belongs to him. They are his people. They are his servants. He has set himself over and against God This is a spiritual battle with very, very real physical realities. This is a battle of the gods with Israel, with God's son as the prize. And so we have seen the Pharaoh of slavery in this first half of chapter 5. And now, secondly, in verses 15 through 23, we'll see the people of slavery. The foremen of Israel in verse 15, those that Pharaoh has put in charge of their countrymen, they, they come to Pharaoh basically saying, I think there's been some big misunderstanding here. Like, it doesn't make any sense that you would make us gather our own straw. That is extremely counterproductive. The Egyptian taskmasters told us that we have to collect this straw, but this can't be true. There must be some misunderstanding. And on its surface, this seems like just some ordinary labor dispute. The union reps have come in, to make their case to the management. They are here to broker a new deal. There's been some misfiring communication here, but surely we can all get on the same page here. But this isn't just a labor dispute. What is really happening? In verses 15 through 16, just two short verses, three times these foremen call themselves your servants. Whose servants? Not Yahweh's. They're here saying, O Pharaoh, Your servants, we, your servants, are here. As one commentator says, they were so used to being in bondage that they could not think of themselves as anything but slaves. Rather than seeking to be free, they went to renegotiate the terms of their captivity. We don't know if these foremen were present just a few short verses ago at the end of chapter four, if they were the ones that were believing, if they were the ones bowing their heads and worshiping God, but here they are really, really upset that life has gotten more difficult. And now they're just wanting their slavery to go back to the way that it once was, the way it was before, before Moses showed up. But Pharaoh tells them, no, no, there's no mistake at all. I meant what I said, now get back to work. And if you cannot keep producing at the same rate at which you were before, it's just because you're lazy. And so they come out of their meeting with Pharaoh red hot. They are angry. 
There's a couple of ways that verse 20 could be translated. The ESV says, they met, with, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. But the foreman, it could be translated, it could be that the foreman are also the subject of this sentence and that they were the ones waiting, waiting to pounce on Moses and Aaron. The CSB version says, perhaps gets the tone a little bit more uh, of this sentence where they, the CSB says, when they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron who stood waiting to meet them. And what happens when they confront Moses and Aaron? They call down curses on them. In verse 21, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They are angry and they want judgment on Moses and Aaron. When life gets difficult, it's perhaps one of our first responses to find someone to blame. To blame those in authority over us. Like any of us who have had a job of any amount of difficulty, we know how that goes, right? My boss is just incompetent, perhaps even wicked college or high school students, it's just that your professor just doesn't like you, right? Uh, That's why you get bad grades. You teenagers, your parents are here to make your life miserable, aren't they? Now, it may be that your boss, your professor, perhaps even your mom or dad is incompetent or even wicked. They exist to make your life miserable. After all, It kind of is Moses' fault that things get bad for these folks, right? Like if Moses hadn't shown up saying, thus saith the Lord, things wouldn't have, have gotten more difficult. But what should the foreman have done? Instead of coming and saying all this to Pharaoh and then pointing their anger at Moses and Aaron, what should have they done? After hearing of what God was going to do to deliver them, where should their energy and their attention have been pointed? To Yahweh, to the Lord, to God, to the one who could not just get things back to the way it once was, but could deliver them from freedom entirely. They should have, with Paul in Philippians 4, been thinking, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Or with Peter in 1 Peter 5, to humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. Like those five words are perhaps five of the sweetest words in the entire Bible. That amidst immense and intense suffering that Peter is writing to these Christians, that they might cast their anxieties to God, on God, because he cares for you. The creator God of the universe, who sees, hears, and understands everything that you are going through in suffering, who has experienced suffering himself, and will one day finally and fully extinguish the reality of suffering forever amongst his people, he wants to hear, he wants to receive, he wants to bear your suffering and anxiety. Why? Because he cares for you. 
Not like theoretically, not impractically even, not for others, but for you. Now that's absolutely not to say that when we encounter political or societal evil or injustice, we should merely pray. Especially in a country whose government is predicated on the involvement, on the feedback, even on the protests of its people. It is our civic duty as Americans to make our requests not only to God, but make our requests known to our representative government. But I fear that we're beginning to believe that if something is going to get done in this evil world of ours, if something is going to happen, the government is the one who should get it done. Some outside authority out there has to be in a place to correct this illegitimate authority who is imposing wickedness on me or on society. Some outside authority must hear and must bring justice. And if I am experiencing evil, if I am experiencing injustice in the world, it must be because the wrong authorities are in power. And we just need to replace those wrong authorities with better authorities. Maybe. In, in fact, that's why we vote and often vote for people who are not incumbents. We want to replace one representative authority with another, that's true, but there is no place of human authority, no human out there or collection of humans out there that will rule in perfect equity and in perfect justice. Some are more equitable, some are more just than others, but to put your hope in an always humble, always good, always benevolent human authority is a foolish hope. All humans are exactly like these foremen. They are bound in slavery, actually unable to want to be free from their slavery and their sin. Martin Luther calls this the bondage of the will. That while humans can engage in acts of altruism and engage in acts of goodness towards the world and to society, they will do so apart from Christ. The human will is actually enslaved so that it cannot it will not know God or desire the actual good without his intervention. The human will does not want to know God, it will not know God, and it will not know his loving wisdom without his intervention. And so while God can act and move through human governments made up of all sorts of folks who are Christians and who are not Christians to promote peace, to hope that a government or another place of human authority can fix the fundamental human problem, the bondage of the will, the selfishness of humanity, to hope in that is foolishly naive. And yet we humans, even we Christian humans, who have had our will freed to actually want and desire the things of God, to want Christ, we can still look to blame, to point our fingers at others to point our anger, sometimes even at God. These foremen pounce on Moses and Aaron, calling down curses on them. But then look how Moses responds. After all this whole scene in verse 22, Moses then turned to the Lord, turned to Yahweh and said, oh Lord, notice there in your English Bibles, it doesn't have the all caps L-O-R-D, but just the one uppercase L and then lowercase O-R-D is just saying, oh, master, oh, Elohim. 
Oh, oh Lord, not, not my covenant God, but oh master, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Just as Israel would rather have gone back to a more manageable form of slavery like before, Moses perhaps here wants a do-over too. Why did you ever send me? Why did you ever have to show up talking in the bush that day? Why did you ever send me back to Egypt? I wish that I could just be back with the sheep in the wilderness, not here with a Pharaoh who does not want to be confronted with my countrymen who hate me. And notice all the accusatory yous in verses 22 and 23. Why have you done evil? Why did you ever send me? I came to speak in your name and you have not delivered your people at all. And seriously, why not? Like it seems like Moses has kind of got a case, doesn't he? Why is God allowing things to get harder before they get better? On the one hand, we can rightly say, I don't know. And it's not our place to know. I consider Paul in Romans 9. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? Like, who is a clay pot to say to its potter, Why'd you make me like this? But on the other hand, might God have some greater purposes in mind than just providing relief from making bricks? Might he be about making his name great and famous amongst the Egyptians, amongst Israel, and amongst the nations? He wouldn't get to show his power over Pharaoh and over the Egyptian gods had Pharaoh just said the first time Moses rolled up and saying, hey, let these people go. And he said, sure, go, see you later. Israel might have been tempted to be thankful to Pharaoh. Israel might have been tempted to be thankful and even worshiping of Moses as their deliverer instead of Yahweh as their deliverer. The missionary Hudson Taylor once said, when man works, man works. When man prays, God works. And we want to see the power of God. We want the world to see the power of God. And it is good that God wants that for himself as well. So might God be about making his name great? And this is why things get a little worse initially. Might God be about actually bringing judgment to Pharaoh and to Egypt for centuries of brazen wickedness? That kind of makes us uncomfortable. But yes, it sure seems so. We'll think more about this next week as we see God harden Pharaoh's heart. What in the world is that all about? Might God be about shaping not just the compulsory obedience of one generation of Israelites, but more about shaping the worshiping, loving obedience of generation upon generation of Israelites. And then finally and fully shaping a loving obedience of freedom from humanity of all nations. And that we might learn from this in this story as well. Yes, Romans 9 isn't just a, hey, keep your mouth shut and don't ever ask God questions 
That's not what Paul is saying in Romans 9, because Romans 9 is followed up by Romans 11, where Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? There's a sense in which the clay doesn't ask the potter, why did you make me into this kind of a pot? Because the reason the pot doesn't ask that of the potter is because the potter is so wise and I'm just a lump of clay. What do I know about the world? God knows. God sees. God hears and he cares. Even, in the, even if the circumstances of your life seem impossibly difficult. Things are actually getting worse in your life. There is suffering. And even saying no to sin in your life and choosing to obey Christ in your life seems to be making life more difficult. The Christian life, nevertheless, is a life of ever-increasing joy, even if it doesn't show itself in the short term. It's a life of learning to deny the self. It's a life of learning to carry your own cross. It's a life of death. Carrying the place of your own death because you are so convinced that the death of the old self, the old enslaved desires are actually not better in the long term than obedience and joy in Christ. Israel and Moses are showing, just like we can often show, that what we want is God to just improve our circumstances. When we respond in faith to him, We want him to just improve our circumstances sometimes, which shows that the God we worship is actually not God, but the God that we worship is just good circumstances. So what might God be shaping and forming in you through bad circumstances? How might he be stripping away some of the things in your life so that you might be actually captivated by him? and not just good circumstances, that he might actually capture your heart in your joyful love and obedience, that we might actually say and believe and agree with the psalmist in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's You are all I need. My flesh, my heart may fail, but that's okay. The good circumstances have been stripped away and things are difficult, but that's okay because you are there and you are good. So even though Moses responded to God with anger and accusation, we might, if we did not know God and his character, we might expect God to turn around with an accusatory finger of his own. Like any time, one of my kids accuses the other of some great injustice or evil. The first thing that is said in response is, yeah, but, like you, right? Like, I am justified in my evil because of your evil. God could very easily have turned around on Moses with a litany of yous or how dare yous or of condemnation. But look at how God responds. Thirdly and lastly now with the God of freedom, Chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, just scan that section. There's big picture, scan that page in your Bible. Do you see any U's? There's a couple there, but there are a couple of U's there. When 
God just says what he's going to do for you, for Moses and for Israel. Rather, if you're scanning big picture over the first half of chapter six, look at all of the eyes. It is I, 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 I. And God is saying, I hear you, Moses. I hear your anger. I hear your doubt. But listen, listen what I'm going to do. The promises that I made to you in the bush, the promises that I made all those years ago to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, they are still good even though you don't believe them. When things don't look like I'm going to be with you, when things don't look like I'm with you now, when things in the future don't look like I am with you, I am your God and I will be your God. Though you can't see into the future, I can. Like Exodus 19 is coming. It's all coming. Where God tells Israel that he brought them out of Israel or out of Egypt on eagle's wings. I'm pretty sure that this is where the Christian J.R.O. Tolkien gets his eagle imagery and like the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings where like it's kind of just a go-to crutch of his. When anything is a really dire situation, just call the eagles and everything's great. But when things are at their worst, when it doesn't look like there is any other way out, the eagles show up to miraculously take the surrounded, to take the weak, to take them to safety and rest. And this is coming for Israel. When there is no other way, when they're surrounded and weak and helpless, when they are not tall enough to see over the horizon, they can only see wickedness ahead of them and cannot see God's coming redemption and glory and deliverance and salvation over the horizon because they just can't get over the horizon. Nevertheless, God can see and he knows it is coming. Often we are not tall enough to see the fullness of what Jesus means when he says, come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. Sometimes that doesn't seem like he's keeping that promise. Sometimes anxiety comes with following Christ. Sometimes difficulty comes with following Christ, but we just aren't tall enough to see it stuck in the pits of illness or of financial difficulty or of loneliness, of difficulty at work, it can be hard to see the sunrise of the promise that God will be with us even unto the end of the age and that these promises are still good. They were good in Moses' day and God will show himself to be faithful in the history of Israel and then beyond. Like, if you were, if you Perhaps we're a bit distracted at the beginning of the service when Clint was reading the call to worship from Psalm 139. If, if any of this is resonating at all tonight, like life is difficult and I'm struggling, read Psalm 139 about a hundred times this week and just meditate through it. This is not just like a pro-life chapter in the Bible. It is that because God knits together babies in the womb, but this is it intensely personal, experiential chapter in the Bible that God has knit me, has knit you together in his mother's womb and has known you more intimately than you know yourself before you even took a breath. Incredible. So as we come to the table tonight, we're reminded that God has shown himself in the past to be faithful 
in the cross of Christ. We remember what he has done, that he has borne us out of slavery on eagle's wings. The weak, the surrounded, the helpless, they are now free because of what God has done for us through Christ. And remembering, considering what has been done in the past, even in the present, participating in the life and the death of Christ, it then points us forward to the coming, full, final deliverance of Christ. The future faithfulness of God to us, the future faithfulness of God to his promises. He has done the hard part of saving. If he has done the hard part, Christian, if he has fixed your eyes on Christ in faith, then he will certainly do the relatively easy part of keeping you. Of keeping us to final freedom. But it is not here yet. And so we look forward in hope, trying to get just a glimpse of the coming sunrise, even if it is only darkness that we can see from this perspective. So as you come tonight, in all different kinds of situations, in all different kinds of contexts, as you come tonight having all kinds of different weeks, weeks of victory, weeks of doubt, weeks of joy and happiness, weeks of sad, sadness and loneliness, maybe tonight as you tear off a piece of bread, remembering Jesus' life for you and his death for you, perhaps as you tear one of, the, one of the piece off, you might even just whisper to yourself, because he cares for me. Because he cares for me, that he has lived and he has died and he will keep me into the end. Before we do that, I'm gonna pray tonight with some of the very words that we're about to sing together as we come to the table together. So let's let this prayer that we sing together be our prayer tonight and be our prayer for the rest of our lives. Oh God, I need thy presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power. Who like thyself my guide and stay can be through cloud and sunshine abide with me. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight Tears lose their bitterness. Where is thy sting death? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still, but abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, Lord, abide with me. O risen and victorious Christ, Jesus, Lord of heaven, Lord of my life, Lord of this church, your people, abide with me, abide with your people. Until that day, even so, we pray, come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.